turn with me, please, to your uh, study outline. And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online for our study of God's Word. We are so glad uh, that you're doing that, as well as our friends in Arco, Idaho, and Kalispell, Montana. We are so glad that you're joining us for our study of God's Word uh, here today. Uh, Today we're talking about, on Palm Sunday, the case for Jesus. He is the central figure in all of human history. The most important question anybody will ever answer The most important question for every human being that's ever lived all through history is this, what will you do with Jesus Christ? Uh, He is the most beloved figure in human history and also the most hated. And it's really a mystery. He simply taught love. He taught how to be right with God. He taught that we should love our enemies. And yet he is hated. And the biggest uh, form of persecution in the world today are Christ's followers And to me, that really speaks to the truthfulness of the case for Jesus. Because where does that energy come from? Where does that hatred come from except for the conviction that comes from knowing that he is the central figure in history and everybody must make a decision about him? Uh, What would motivate people to go into uh, a Palm Sunday church service in Egypt and blow up bombs and kill dozens of people and wound uh, dozens more. What, what causes that hatred? Where, where does that come from? And you know, we need to be, be in prayer today uh, for Pastor Ashraf, the pastor of our Arabic service. And right at 11.11 during the third hour of the morning, they're over in the uh, H building and they're going to be proclaiming uh, the gospel there in Arabic and it goes out, to, as I mentioned the other Sunday, to uh, some days as high as 1,200, on average 700 people, uh, many of them across the Middle East online. And we need to pray for Pastor Ashraf that God will give him the message of today to speak uh, to either potential Christ followers or to Christ followers that are in such jeopardy and such danger uh, across the Middle East. As a matter of fact, let's pray right now. Lord, we pray for uh, Pastor Ashraf and for our Arabic fellowship. And I know that their hearts are heavy here today. And Lord, I would pray that you would speak through Pastor Ashraf as, as there are millions on his television program every week and hundreds uh, from his uh, message here that he at our Arabic service every Sunday. And speak through him during challenging times. And I pray that this thing that Satan meant for evil you will turn it around for good for the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said, amen. Amen. The case for Jesus, first of all, the reliability of the New Testament. How do we know that the historical Jesus existed? Now, you'll see a little chart there in your study outline. And please forgive me, I failed to um, uh, put the headings to these uh, four columns, these five columns there. And so you could write that in. I haven't given you much room to put notes, and I'll hear that from my wife, Kimberly, at the eleven eleven service. It's like, why do we have more room to put notes in there? So try to squeeze it in there. First of all, the first column is author, uh, Plato, Caesar, Aristotle, etc. The next column is uh, date written. Oh, I can put it right up here. Date written. Uh, right here, this is the, the like the Plato's Republic and the works of Plato were written around 400 BC. Then put in earliest copy, that's the earliest actual copy that we have in our hands is from 900 AD. You subtract the two, remembering BC to AD, that's 1300 year gap and we only have seven copies from an antiquity, okay? Now, compare that with the New Testament where it was written 
in, uh, completed the whole New Testament, the 27 books, right around 100 A.D., other books earlier than that, but around 100 A.D., uh, the gap, uh, the earliest copy we have of the entire New Testament is from A.D. 200, but we have some books of the New Testament that just from a handful of years, there are fragments from just a very few years of the New Testament. Uh, that's a gap of 100 years or less. How many copies do we have from antiquity? Not seven, but 5,300. That means when you read your New Testament, far more, thousands of times more. I mean, we just assume that when we read Plato's The Republic, that we're reading the works of Plato, and we are for 99.9%. But how much more when we read the New Testament do we know that these are eyewitness accounts uh, to the events that they talk uh, that they talk about? Let me give you another example. Uh, Shakespeare, uh, 400 years ago, 1600 AD, he wrote 37 plays 400 years ago. There are gaps in all of them. That is when Romeo says something to Juliet, sometimes we just don't know. There's a gap there. Now, scholars have a word for this called conjectural inundation, which is a fancy academic term for educated guess. And they just guess what's in those gaps. How many of those gaps do you think are in the New Testament? Zero. Even though it was written 1,600 years uh, before the works of Shakespeare. Does the text say what was originally written? Sir Frederick Kenyon, who was the director of the British Museum uh, for over 50 years, says the interval between the dates and the original composition of the New Testament and the earliest existing evidence is so small, it's negligible, negligible, or it doesn't mean a thing. The last foundation for any doubt that the Scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. So we can know that when we read the New Testament, we are reading this from eyewitness accounts. Second question, do the historical references match with known reality? Do they match with known reality? Do they match with other facts from archaeology and from history? And they do 100% of the time. Now, this is what's amazing. Unlike other works of antiquity, it's not just that they're accurate and others aren't accurate. Other works of antiquity, works of philosophers or religious leaders like Buddha or Confucius, they have almost zero history in them. I mean, I, I think I remember that there's one more history in one chapter of the book of Genesis than there is the entire book of the Koran. There is no history in them. They simply have certain teachings, and you can take it or leave it. There's no way to prove whether it's true or not. But the Bible literally gives us thousands upon thousands of historical dates and geography and archaeological details where it basically says, you can test me objectively. And if you find the message of God's word to be objectively true, then you can test, then you can trust the parts that are subjective. Like, what do you do to go to heaven and to be made right with God? Let me give you an example. Just one of the 66 books of the Bible, the book of Acts, just the book of Acts, has over 300 historical references just in that one book. Names, dates, geographical locations. And it has been proven right 100% of the time. Let me give you an example. Sir William Ramsey, who was a geographer uh, around the year 1900, went to the Middle East to map out the ancient world. And he was told, don't bother with the Bible, it's filled with errors. But he discovered in his geography work that the best guide to geography, to mapping, almost like a map, was the Bible. He found it to be 100% accurate, 
and as a result, he committed his life to Jesus Christ. Uh, through geography, the geography of the Bible led him to Christ. Uh, let me give you another example, Pontius Pilate. Um, for years, skeptics of the Bible made fun of the Bible because Pontius Pilate was mentioned, and there was no mention found of him in Greek or Roman literature until 1961. Archaeologists were excavating an amphitheater at Caesarea, and here they found carved into a front row seat, this seat is reserved for Pontius Pilate. And then it had his title listed underneath. So basically, he was a season ticket holder at the amphitheater in Caesarea. The archaeologists used the Bible uh, as a guide on archaeological digs, and they will say, the Bible says there's going to be a gate of a certain style, archaeologically, right over here. And they would use the Bible as a guidebook and find that thing it talked about 100% of the time. Uh, Jack Cottrell writes, through the wealth of data uncovered by historical and archaeological research, we're able to measure the Bible's historical accuracy. In every case where its claims can thus be tested, the Bible proves to be accurate and reliable. Well, if the message is reliable, what is the message? And the main message of the New Testament is that there's only one way to God, only one God and only one way to him, and his name is Jesus Christ. It is not a bunch of words. It is about a person. It's not a philosophy. It's not a religion. It is about a who, not a what. And his name is Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John writes in chapter 20, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. There, He says, what you find in the pages of the Gospels, the four Gospels, is just the tip of the iceberg which are not recorded in this book. But these are written. He says, I've selected a number of them, about 36 to 38 of them, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Uh, Jesus said in John chapter 5 that he is the central issue. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. And then in verse 46, he says, if you believe Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote about me. It is all about Jesus. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, salvation, Peter says, is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Henry Hyde has written that no founder of any religion has dared to claim for himself one fraction of the assertions made by the Lord Jesus Christ about himself. No religion has claimed for its founder what Christianity has claimed for the Lord Jesus Christ. No founder of any religion has been as highly acclaimed, this is interesting, by those of other faiths as has the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that? He is certainly the center of Christ's followers, but he, he's as highly esteemed in the other religions of the world as well. Mahatma Gandhi said, follow after Jesus. Every good Hindu should follow the example of the life of Jesus. Did you know that Jesus in the Quran is higher than Muhammad? Uh, he's not, uh, Muhammad's considered the final prophet, but Jesus is the greater prophet. He is the greatest even in the Quran. Uh, he's the central figure in world history. Every time you write a date down, every time you go to the doctor's office and they say, uh, give me your birth date, you are acknowledging that history is divided by the birth of Jesus Christ. The most technological society in the history of the world 
uh, 2,000 years after his birth, every time you turn your computer on, it says the date and it proclaims that Jesus is the central figure in world history. Every time we put a date down and write it on our check or write it on a contract, we are proclaiming he is the central figure. All of human history is divided between before he came and after he came. Now we're faced with four options. Was he a legend? Uh, The problem with saying he's a legend is that there are writings that we actually have, uh, fragments of them at least, or whole books of them, or an entire New Testament that was during the time period of eyewitnesses. And it's hard to create a legend except in your own mind if there are eyewitnesses. Um, For a legend, you need two things. You need miles and years. I always laugh about the little observation about the difference between England and, and California, Southern California, or California in general. Um, in England, 100 years is not a big deal, but 100 miles is. In California, 100 miles is not a big deal, but 100 years is. And you need both of them to create a legend. You need something, if I was going to create a legend here, I'd have to have somebody that was born years ago before eyewitnesses and miles away um, without eyewitnesses. And, and that we have an eyewitness account of the life and miracles and resurrection of Jesus. And so you can't have a legend when you're talking about eyewitnesses. Otto Betts writes, no serious scholar has ventured to postulate the non-historicity of Jesus. 1994, the Jesus papyrus uh, was uh, discovered. It was a fragment of the book of Matthew from A.D. 66. That's 33 years after the resurrection during the lifetime of eyewitnesses. Now think back 33 years. Um, It would be 1984. Now suppose I stood up here and said that my predecessor, Dr. Willie Lucas, rose from the dead in 1984. How many of you were alive during 1984 so you could refute that particular statement? Uh, Absolutely. And that's the problem with the legend idea is that it was written by eyewitnesses that could refute it or affirm it. Will Durant who was agnostic, an agnostic but considered America's foremost historian, said that a few simple men should in one generation have invented so powerful and appealing a personality, so lofty an ethic, and so inspiring a vision of human brotherhood would be a miracle far more incredible than any recorded in the Gospels. So if he wasn't a legend, was he a liar? What was his motivation for lying? Certainly didn't get him money. He died with the clothes on his back. It got him crucified. There was no motivation to lie. Well, then was he a lunatic? Non-Christian psychiatrist J.T. Fisher writes, if you would take the sum total of the best articles written by the most qualified psychologists and psychiatrists, combine them and refine them, take the best of the best articles, and then have the best of the living poets concisely express what these things said, the result would be a very poor version of the Sermon on the Mount and would suffer immeasurably through comparison. The Christian world has been holding in its hands for the last 2,000 years the complete blueprint to mental health, peace, and contentment. This was not written by a lunatic. And so we're left with the final option. He is who he claimed to be, and those that were eyewitnesses to his ministry claimed him to be. He is Lord. C.S. Lewis writes, There is no halfway house, and there is no parallel in other religions. If you had gone to Buddha... And ask him, are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, my son, you are still in the veil of illusion. If you had gone to Socrates and asked, are you Zeus? He would have laughed at you. 
If you had gone to Muhammad and asked, are you Allah? He would have first rent his clothes and then cut your head off. If you had asked Confucius, are you heaven? I think he would probably have replied, remarks which are not in accordance with nature are in bad taste. The proofs of his lordship, his miracles, uh, their number, uh, the recorded ones are between 35 and 38. Many more beyond that, but those are the ones that we have recorded. Their variety. They weren't all of one type. Some had to do with the physical body and healing. Some had to do with food. Some had to do with the forces of nature. Some had to do with raising people from the dead. But the most important thing is the reaction uh, to these miracles. In Mark chapter 2, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Interesting thing. I find this so fascinating. You know, the most common way that Christianity is attacked today is uh, people will say, well, they don't believe in miracles. I don't believe in the miracles. Do you know that that was never an attack used by the enemies of Christianity for the first 500 years after his resurrection? For five centuries, nobody ever thought to use that one. Because there were enough uh, eyewitnesses that had passed it on to children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-great-grandchildren. Now, they would say things like uh, the miracles were done by the demonic. Or they would say they were done like a magician, sleight of hand. But nobody ever thought, even the harshest enemies, the cruelest enemies of Christ's followers, never occurred to them to debunk the miracles, to claim the miracles didn't happen for 500 years, and then there was enough time uh, that that could be an attack on, on, on the Christian faith. Never even considered it because it was so obvious that they had happened. Uh, fulfilled prophecies. You know, there are 300 prophecies about Jesus, but there are thousands and thousands more about countries and about the rise of nations and the fall of nations, and, and there's thousands of fulfilled prophecies within God's Word, just unbelievable fulfilled prophecies, just incredible things. But 300 of them happen to be about Jesus. And if you were to take just 17 of those fulfilled in Christ, the chances that just 17 of the 300, which are just part of thousands, just that 17 were fulfilled by accident is one chance in 400 billion times a billion times a trillion. And then his resurrection, the most validated event in human history. I'm going to talk about that more next Sunday. Uh, James Orr writes, no single example can be produced of belief in the resurrection of an historical personage such as Jesus was, none at least on which anything was ever founded. The Christian resurrection is thus a fact without historical an uh, analogy. Uh, that's why Philip Schaff wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all the philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of the school, he spoke words of life such as were never spoken before nor since and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he has set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, works of art, learned volumes, and sweet songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. Born in a manger, and crucified as a malefactor. He now controls the destinies of the civilized world and rules a spiritual empire which embraces one-third of the inhabitants of the globe. That is why we are unashamed to believe 
that it is not narrow-minded or arrogant to boldly proclaim the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Let's watch this together. We think that narrow means intolerant, right? And intolerant somehow is the, is the cardinal sin of our world, right? If you're playing a guitar, I mean, how many G's are there? How many notes? How many ways can you play a G? That's, that's one way to play a G. You're either on key or off key. Is that intolerant? Is that narrow? Is that unfair? No, it's beautiful. It's, there's a way to play this note. It's beautiful. The step back is like, well, what, what, what's wrong with that, right? And narrow in what way, right? Narrow in the way of being clear and being concise and being decisive and being attainable, right? Right? Yeah, in, in that sense, absolutely. But that not that a good narrow? Like, isn't that, aren't these good things that like, it's not like I'm just, I'm shooting up, I'm, you know, I'm throwing spaghetti at the wall and hoping that one of them sticks. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's broad, right? But that's, I mean, come on now. Like, who's trying to live like that? That you just toss up stuff and hope that something stays on there. Like, nah, man. Like, tell me the bullseye. You know? Tell me the target. How do I fix this? How was man made right with God? I'm going to be like, well, you know, I ain't figured it out. Oh, no. No, I won't. Who has? Nobody's figured it out. Right? No, I need you to tell me. What's, what's, how do we get this? So in my mind, I'm like, Man, why is narrow bad? Narrow's in a lot of contexts good, right? Doesn't mean it lacks grace, doesn't mean it lacks love. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. I think a lot of people struggle to believe because some Christians make it incredible. Um, take away the possibility of making the faith beautiful and winsome incredible because of because of the way that we live and the things that we do. Now, <laughs> there is something funny, uh, funny about that and a little ironic. So Christians are hypocrites. Okay. Yes. I am a hypocrite. Can I just say that? I'm, I'm a hypocrite. I, um, many of the things that I say that I espouse to believe, um, I don't live. And I am, and I know actually lots of, of people who aren't Christians who are who are who live better lives than I do? Uh, one of my closest friends is a Sikh, and he is a much more disciplined, uh, much uh, more self-controlled person than I am. But see, the funny thing about Christianity is that hypocrisy actually does not undermine the credibility of the Christian faith, because in some ways, hypocrisy is necessary. Uh, because what it what is required to be a Christian is not that you're good and moral and squeaky clean and have nothing wrong with you. The first thing that is actually required to become a Christian is that you admit that you're jacked up and need help. That's like the only thing that's required is that you know that you are so messed up that you need grace. So in some sort of weird kind of ironic way, it requires people who are messed up. It requires people who know that their lives are not put together. So this is why when you go into a church, you find a bunch of people who are hypocrites because we are, all of us are. We, we're all broken. We're all messed up. And now that doesn't excuse Christians doing and saying stupid things by any means. But what I'm saying is that the stupidity of Christians does not discredit the reality of the Christian faith. If anything, it points to how important and necessary Jesus is.
because Jesus is there not to make squeaky clean moral people. Jesus is there to save broken, messed up people, of which the church is full of them. Yeah, that's what I'd say to that. Next question, where is Christianity unique from other religions and philosophies? Uh, Do all religions lead to God? Steve Kumar writes, one basic assumption of the modern mind is that all religions are both fundamentally the same and superficially uh, different. Mahatma Gandhi wrote, my position is that all the great religions are fundamentally equal. Ramakrishna said, truth is one, sages call it by various names. But this is utterly inconsistent with the way we live all of our lives. Nobody says, when you come to a stoplight, you choose red or green, whatever works for you. Uh, Explain that to a police officer when he pulls you over later. Nobody says when it comes to a round earth or a flat earth, no big deal, you pick. Whatever you pick is cool. Nobody says two plus two equals four or two plus two equals five. Whatever works for you, that's what I want you to choose. There's right and then there's wrong. There's truth and there's error. Love, sincerity, honesty, and faith cannot be the basis for all religions. Hitler sincerely believed in what he was doing, but he was sincerely wrong. A Hindu mother may very lovingly offer her child as a sacrifice to the goddess Kali, but her love will not alter the tragedy. You that are engineers, doctors, nurses, computer programmers, contractors, you operate on the basis of absolute truth. There's a right way to do something and a wrong way to do something. Brian Maiden writes, it is not enough to worship God. We must worship the God who really is. Otherwise, we are not really worshiping God at all. Vernon Grounds writes, unless a religion squares with the facts of history and human experience, and unless it agrees with the truth of God, which is the underlying reality of all things, that religion, however sincere its followers may be, is just not good enough. Michael Green writes, it is not that Christians are narrow-minded or uncharitable about other faiths, but if Jesus is indeed, as the resurrection asserts, God himself come to our rescue, then to reject him or even to neglect him is ultimate folly. When I go to my doctor, I want him or her to be narrow-minded. How many want their doctors to be narrow-minded? I want them to say, this is what will help you, this is what will hurt you, this is what will kill you. And I want him or her to avoid this and avoid this and be narrow-minded in their passion for the truth as to what will help me. Steve Kumar writes, if all religions contradict one another, There are only two logical choices. Either they are all false or there is only one true religion. Now I'm going to let you read on your own um, the next question, the uniqueness of Christianity. You'll just see the quotes there uh, in your uh, study outline, the book that I gave you here this morning, and you can read that on on your own. I want to skip down to what do we say about other religions, because this is something that is a very uh, struggle for many people. We believe that Jesus is ultimate truth. We believe that. But that doesn't mean that other religions are totally wrong. As a matter of fact, you would expect there to be some truth in other religions for three reasons. Number one, God has partially revealed himself in creation. David writes in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. 
the skies proclaim the work of his hands. You can look at a starlit night and know certain things about God. You can know that he's powerful, that he's organized, that he's awesome, that he appreciates beauty. Paul writes in Romans 1, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Sir Isaac Newton, who's considered the greatest, one of the greatest mathematicians and a physicist of all time, uh, said this, in the absence of any other proof, the human thumb alone would convince me of God's existence. Just the engineering of the human thumb. So next time somebody says to you, what proof do you have of God? Just go like this, just just like that, you know. Number two, human beings are made in the image of God, and so we'd expect some truth in in other religions. Romans 2, Paul writes, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have uh, the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences, also bearing witness, and their thoughts, sometimes accusing them, and at other times, uh, defending them, okay? Uh, Matthew 7, verse 12, is what we call the golden rule. Uh, Do to others what you'd have them do to you. Do you know that the negative form, that's the positive form, the negative uh, form of the golden rule is found in many other teachers of religion and philosophies and uh, religions of antiquity, in its negative form. That is, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. You can find that in the writings of Confucius, Hinduism, Buddhism, Rabbinic Judaism, Greek and Roman ethical teaching. But only in Jesus do we have it in the positive form, do to others what you would have them do uh, to you. And so human uh, beings are made in the image of God. And from nature, there are certain things we can learn. So we'd expect there to be some truth in other religions. And then number three, every heart hungers for God. I love this verse in Ecclesiastes by Solomon. He says, he, God, has also set eternity in the human heart. Do you know, we have this impression that atheism is growing, and and, and maybe in America it is growing. It might very well be in our backyard. But do you know that worldwide, and this is not Christian research, this is secular research. This is from a secular research company. Okay, do you know that worldwide, Um, true atheists around the world are only 4.5% of the world's population, and the number is shrinking as the years go by. Even with the increase of technology and and, 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 and science and information and knowledge and, and, and all these things and sophistication, even with the increase of that, it's 4.5% and it's shrinking every year that goes by. How can that be? Here's the explanation. He, God, has set eternity in the human heart. And no matter how much we try to stamp it out, it's written on our hearts, there must be a God. And so we would expect to find some truth in other religions. I'm going to let you read on your own. What about those who have never heard about Jesus? But let's uh, finish up now with what should we do, okay? What, what should we do? Um, they have some explanation about those that uh, you know, have not heard. The um, Bible's a practical book. No one's saved by religion. We can be sure that God will be fair and just. Um, I, I love that saying, all that I know of my creator leads me to trust him in that which I do not understand. And so we know that God will be fair with those who have never heard about Christ. But what should we do? Number one, we have no excuse. We have heard the gospel. 
We know it. Everybody in the sound of my voice, whether on podcast or online or um, in Montana or Idaho or here in Pomona or where you're watching online and joining us, we have no excuse. And Hebrews 2, 3 says, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Today's the day to answer the question, what will you do with Jesus? And the answer is, proclaim him as Lord and open up your heart and receive him as your Lord and Savior. The best way to prepare for Easter week is to become a follower of Christ. You say, Glenn, if I'd like to do that today, how would I do it? Right in front of you in the book rack, you'll see a card that says a resources. And there's the three steps that the Bible says, acknowledging, like the pastor just says, that we're all jacked up. We're hypocrites. We're messed up. We need a Savior. And that Christ is the answer to that. He is the one who can save us through his death on the cross and his resurrection. And then we open up our hearts and receive him. And there's a little suggested prayer there. And today can be your day. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? But number three, number two, we need to be positive. The vast majority of what the Bible teaches is positive, not negative. And we should be known as a church more for what we're for than what we're against. Would anybody say amen to that? Now, there's a time to say what we're against. Don't get me wrong. There's a time to say that. But the vast majority of the Bible tells what we are for. And so we, we need to be positive. You know, FBI agents, when they're figuring out how to uh, find out uh, counterfeit bills, they don't work with the counterfeits. They work with the real bills. They handle money. They smell money. They feel money. They rub money uh, so that they know the false when it comes And so we put an emphasis on the truth. We need to be positive. Number three, we need to be respectful. Every person we talk to is made in God's image, and we need to be humble and gracious. But then on the other hand, number four, we need to be bold. If you have the cure to cancer, how many of you, somebody in your family or circle of friends has been affected by cancer? I know I have. I hate that disease. It has taken more people that I love from me and done more more heartache than in our family and in our church family. I hate that disease. If I had the cure to it, would I be arrogant, pushy, or intolerant if I tried to share it with people that needed it? Absolutely not. Uh, Paul writes in Romans 1.16, Paul, who was an earlier skeptic of the Christian faith, if Paul were alive today, he may have bombed a Coptic church in Egypt this morning. If Paul were alive today, he may have been one of the ones that did that. And yet he encountered the risen Jesus Christ. And in the middle of a first century Greco-Roman pluralistic culture, he said these words. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And you know what my prayer is for each one of us this next week? is that we will take fistfuls of these invitations and we will not be ashamed of the gospel because we hold in our hands the secret, the cure for something far worse than cancer, which can only take our lives in this life, but we're talking about eternal destiny, heaven or hell. And we are not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. And let's be bold as we invite people to Good Friday, indoor service at 8, 9 and 11 at the Fairplex. Let's be bold because Jesus is the answer to the needs of everybody we're going to encounter this coming week. And all God's family said,
Amen.